You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Carmen Khalil, the publisher and writer and all-round superstar, whose new book is called Oh Happy Day, Those Times and These Times. Now, to start with, you know, anyone picking up a book called Oh Happy Day might expect a bit less dysentery, flogging and child mortality. I agree. I agree. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're going to write about the British Empire and what people suffered from it, you have to sort of get readers to pick it up. I mean, there is a happy story in the middle of it, but the British Empire, which is not correctly taught in schools, as you know, I think, that I think it so, included a heck of a lot of suffering, so you can't write about it without writing about that, particularly to their own people. I mean, I think what I wanted to do, Sam, though God knows anything that happened to convicts and Australians was nothing in comparison to what happened to West Indians and... Indians, but nevertheless, the suffering quota for the British Empire was tremendous, really. And so I wanted to point um, that out. Did you start out wanting to write about the Empire and find a way of oh, doing no. it through your own family, or did you start out wanting to write about your own family and find it turning oh, no, into the story um, of the Empire? No, absolutely. I, I, the book changed twice. It was meant to be my memoirs, for which I've had a contract for many, many years, and I always give them a different book. But I am going to start my memoirs when this is over. I really must because I'm morally um, obligated to. Anyway, I changed it to just my ancestors after John Howard brought in boat people and Nauru Island in Australia, you know, because I thought it was an absolute disgrace that Australia had that attitude to refugees when all of us are descended from refugees, not to mention worse. I mean, in my case, you couldn't get much bottom of the barrel than my ancestors, could you? I mean, you'd have to really dig deep. (laughs) (laughs) They had some rough and tumble lives. They certainly did. They were the poorest of the poor in every area. So then I thought, I'm just going to write about my ancestors. And then when George Osborne brought in austerity, I ratcheted up a bit because I thought austerity was so unfair on the people of this country. And when I say the people of this country, I mean... The ordinary people, like my ancestors, were whipped within an inch of their lives. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I feel very hostile to austerity and I feel very hostile today that we live in a country where people are hungry. There we go. And did you did you grow up with a strong sense of your ancestors or was all of this new? No, anyway? completely new. No, no, I brought I was raised with sport. <laughs> Melbourne is the capital of city of sport, I promise you. But it's, it's presumably possible to play, I don't know, hockey or basketball or whatever I played play. basketball and tennis, but I loved cricket. So I think most of my adolescence was cricket and Gilbert and Sullivan, really. Loved Gilbert and Sullivan too. But you had, you had no sense... I mean, presumably you must have thought, right, I'm Australian, some of my ancestors will have been from somewhere else. Not really, because I... You see, being raised a Catholic and also being a funny position in the family, which is that all of my... My my father was the 
nearest youngest of the... When you come from very long families, and you come from the youngest member, you hop generations. And so I knew all my grandparents and the stories were all told me, but they knew nothing. They knew nothing, really. The Irish ones did, but of course that would go without... The Irish never forget what happened to them. The English ones knew nothing. <laughs> You've obviously done a huge amount of research because the book is prefaced by this enormous family tree. Yes. And you've picked out a couple of choice threads through it. Yes. Well, I picked out the immediate ancestors of mine. I mean, Sari was my great-great-grandmother. She was the framework knitter in Leicestershire. And Marianne Brooks was the skivvy in Lincolnshire. And so I picked them. I didn't have to pick them out. They just arose from the research. And tell me a bit about their situation, because we're talking about sort of early 19th century. Yes. And, you know, the Industrial Revolution, as you, you know, we, we tend to think of it as a good thing, but it was yes. not a good thing for your, your people. Well, I don't think it was just my people. Now, come on. It was a good 90% of the population who my people. My people, my ancestors belonged to the large, largest majority of English people. They were working people. They were labouring poor. And when they weren't labouring poor, they were paupers and in the workhouse. And that was by far the largest percentage of the people of the country. They always worked, the women always worked, and they worked um, in their cottages. And then after the enclosures at the end of the... Um, 18th century, I think that is. Yes, I always get my centuries wrong. They were shoved into, or they moved into the towns and lived in hovels with their machines and the dust and the clatter and one room and one bed if one bed there was. And that was the early Industrial Revolution, before mechanisation. That's when I begin my lot, with it, basically at the time of the French Revolution, which was a disaster for the English working man, because the people who ruled the country, the British aristocracy, the landed gentry, the blah, 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 were so horrified by the French Revolution that they were vicious in controlling their poor and working classes. And there wasn't the sense, was there, that ameliorating the condition of the working classes might put off the prospect of revolution? There wasn't, was there, except from the churches. You've got to give them their due, and there were millions of them. I mean, think of Methodism, independence. All my um, English ancestors really were independents, which is Congregationalists now, descendants really of Cromwell, Puritans, independents, Congregationalists. But Wesleyans, of course, were more prolific, more, more successful. They did something for the poor, but God wasn't really a solution, was he? At, at this time... You know, the sort of written records and the personal records of the, of the poor and the labouring poor are presumably harder to come by. How easy was it to get a sense of who Sari was? It required very, very considerable research. But because none of the, some of them were no better than they needed to be, there were many newspaper accounts of them when they were arrested, shoved into workhouses, that sort of thing. So there was that. But there are records, you see... If you think about it, one of the things I'm saying about the British Empire, which is one of the things that I find objectionable about the way British history isn't taught in schools, is the English were immense recorders of everything. They recorded, particularly after 1841 with the census, but before that they wrote everything down. Just as the um, 
Germans did in the labour camps. You know, they re- you can find out these things because they recorded everything. Why they did, I don't know, because they should have been ashamed of themselves. But there you go. Do you see that as a parallel? I mean, some would say, oh, I mean, you can't compare the British Empire to Nazis or the British government. Oh, well, I government. do. I do, certainly. I mean, certainly not to the final solution, no. But you see, when I did my last book, Sam, what I realised is that because we so rightly concentrate on the Holocaust, nobody gives enough attention to the labour camps and the factories, and some people have, but the descriptions of those people, you know, the French citizens, the, the Poles, I think three million Poles died in those labour camps, they lived and had to work. Do you see what I mean? Whereas if you went and... If you were killed, it was over, but the, the people who lived in the concentration camps, in the labour camps, the German labour camps, were like convicts, really, but... Their health was worse. They weren't fed as well in the German labour camps. And they used to walk in crocodiles to their labour in the, say, Siemens or whatever it was, some German thing. And um, the dysentery would pour down their legs, you know, because they had nothing to eat. I mean, the way... If you read this stuff, you'll see what the connections that I'm talking about. Your sort of paupers in in the 18th century... They were being squeezed, as you represented, by this new rush of the way capital was working and, the, yes. uh, you know, by essentially a kind of early ideas about free markets and the, the way the Industrial Revolution was started to behave. But then when they crossed here and there into this kind of state-run or institutional thing, that was something different, wasn't it? What do you mean? If you were in a workhouse. Oh, the workhouse? Well... That was a product of the Poor Law of 1834, and the Poor Law of 1834 ruined the relationship between rich and poor in the villages and towns of Britain because it was what you'd call... Actually, it really does connect with today because I should have thought that the theory behind Osborne's austerity was that benefits corrupt the soul of the working man. That seems seems to have been mentioned when, say, universal credit was brought in, make it very difficult for them to get benefits, you know. Well, the poor law of 1834 meant the workhouses weren't the same as before. Before 1834, ratepayers had to pay for the poor, the indigent, the illegitimate mother, blah, blah, blah. But after 1834, they were shoved into workhouses, which were made, you know, somebody like Jeremy Bentham wanted them to be very disagreeable so that people wouldn't want to go into them, you see, make them suffer for their poverty. It's a different attitude of looking to the human beings amongst whom you live, isn't it? Because, I mean, somebody like Ian Duncan Smith was very concerned that people will rip off the state. And I've got a feeling, you know, that when you hear people talking about migrants coming in, they're always saying they've taken my hospital bed or my something or other. You know, it's a human attitude Obviously, I'm not very sympathetic to. <laughs> now, so we've got Sari, who is in Leicestershire. She's a stockinger. Yep. And she's obviously in and out of extreme poverty. Enter George. I mean, who who, who was he? What, where did he come from? How did he enter Sari's story? He was a good man, George, but his brothers weren't. Can you give a sort of pocket picture well, of him? What also happened in the early Industrial Revolution, which actually I think created it, or helped it, 
was the making of canals. That's the most wonderful story, which, of course, I couldn't write fully, but I had great delight in learning about the English canals. It was amazing. I mean, it was before the railways, you see, and it connected the Midlands to London, to Liverpool, everywhere. I mean, it was an amazing English-British technical achievement. And the people who dug the canals were people like George Conquest. They dug them, they then sailed on them, sailed on their narrow boats and lugged things from A to Z. So all the, the conquests were brickmakers in Market Harbour, very valuable trade it was for them in their lives, actually. But they were also sort of semi-criminals. They were always in the workhouse, always stealing things, which I rather liked about them. I mean, rather than sit and just say, thank you for nothing, they rebelled, really. They were, I think they were, you know, it's what I would have done. I would have gone into some stately home and ripped off everything if I was starving. Anyway. The Jean Valjean defence. Absolutely. I would have. I mean, I just wouldn't put up with it. But George was working the, the Grand Union Canal and also the one that one went up to Loughborough. And that, that canal route stopped at Thermiston where Sarah was living. And it's perfectly clear by the documents that that's where he impregnated her. Because, you see, where the locks were, there were brothels and wine, you know, boozers and everything. I mean, it was a riotous life for the, those without anything. And they spend every penny they could find on booze, as you can see from my book. A habit that has continued through their descendants. Anyway, so George is on the canals and he's told by the village, you know, controllers of the poor rate and the workhouse and so forth, that he has to stump up for Sarah's baby. So he steals a piece of hemp in Middlewich, where he's gone right up on into Cheshire. And he's arrested, he's tried, amazing trial, and um, then he is sentenced to nine years' transportation for stealing a bit of hemp. And before he gets to Australia on on the convict ship, he's in the hulks, and the hulks along the Thames and the southern coast of England were like the German labour camps, absolutely, if not worse, actually. That's amazing descriptions of the hulks. I mean, I simply can't believe it. And <laughs> I, unbelievable they were, unbelievable. You know, I always, I've always liked Arsenal as a football team because I was very keen on Arsene Wenger. But I, every time I think of the Arsenal now, I think of all the bones, in the, the convicts' bones, those that weren't stolen by doctors in London for experiments, all buried in that terrible area of the Royal Arsenal, died on the job. Let's see, I'll have to change your, change your footballing loyalties. Well, and I have, I'm now much more keen on Crystal Palace. Anyway, go on. So George is transported and he makes the passage to Australia. Yeah. By your description of it, had he gone a, a few years earlier, he'd have been very lucky to make it to the other end alive. Yes. I mean, the reason they changed the way they travelled was because the governors of New South Wales, the penal colony, got wrecks of human beings they couldn't they couldn't work obviously they died in shoals they were no good at digging the land and cultivating it and everything and they had to have human beings who could work and that's why they put in doctors onto the ships and by the time George went 1829 it was early to the middle of period of, of transportation 
and the, the trips were much better. When George gets to Australia, he kind of prospers. I mean, this is the you know, somewhat unexpected payoff of the book, that it, it's much better to be transported than to stay in England. Yes, it was. <laughs> but also, you've got to remember that it was... As, the English have done many good things as well as many appalling things, and it's just that I want them to know both. That's my position. But they did have a, a, a view of helping their poor. I mean, certain people wanted to save the poor or give the poor a better life in the colonies and in these all these countries that they appropriated. That really only applied, I would say, to their own white folk. I don't think they wanted to give the what we call Black Lives Matter people that, whose lands they appropriated a better life at all. But they certainly did with their own people. This was just one facet of the reasons for transportation. And your sense of Australia when you were great... I mean, you grew up in Melbourne, I think, didn't yes, you? Completely. Yes, and completely. Mm. You're, you're very regretful in this book that it's named after who it's oh, named after. <laughs> I wish they'd change it, but there's no sign. I mean, fancy being called after that ghastly man. Shocker. What was wrong with Lord Melbourne? Well, he was a flagellator. I think I've written about him in the book. Queen Victoria loved him. He was her favourite. Oh, my favourite thing. He hid behind the curtains when various... Because the Chartists and other rebellious folk were always marching on Parliament with petitions. And there was an enormous one, many during Melbourne's time. And also he was um, responsible for the Tollpuddle Martyrs. You know, he was a great shifter out of the working poor and a great persecutor of them, really, even though he only came from a few miles away from um, his ancestral seat, was very, very near Leicester and very near, well, not that near Market Harbour, but they're all near each other in the Midlands, aren't they? Because we're talking about the East Midlands. So that's why I don't like Melbourne. He was a, a hypocrite. You know, Perfidious Albion, which is what foreigners always called England, he was an absolute example of Perfidious Albion. Everything for him and his, his lot and nothing for the people amongst whom he lived. You talk a little in the book about Australia's kind of original sin about, I mean, you can't go deeply into the question of, the, you know, first Australians and, and yeah. that. But when, I'm interested in when your, you know, your own sense of it as a, as a child, as a young woman. I never, ever saw one. I was raised in a completely Anglo-Saxon way, great dose of Irish Catholicism, but I never met an Aboriginal in my life before I left Australia. And that is the, the shame, the way the Aboriginals were treated by the English and by the Australians who followed them. But you can see that there were different kinds of settlers in Australia. As soon as they realised the land was wealthy, wealthy English people came out. And so the whole system of persecution continued. I suppose I'm saying I come from another kind of Australia. And, I mean, I was raised as a Republican. I never, I never thought about, you know, I, didn't, I don't mind the Queen at all. If you want to have a Queen, by all means, etc. Except I do think it's bad for you. But um, I wasn't raised in that way. You know, I was raised to think Australia was the centre of the universe. So to get back to what you've just... The question you've asked, I think Australia is absolutely should be ashamed, it is ashamed, by centuries of mistreatment of their indigenous population. 
The other thing, I did a session yesterday, though, with ben, Bendigo, which is the centre of the gold rush, and they wanted to talk about the gold rush. And, I, and they said the trouble is throwing money at it hasn't worked. It needs some other approach. I mean, money is always important, but they haven't succeeded in doing anything about it, really. That is an extremely superficial comment on the situation of Aboriginals in Australia, but, we, you know, I'm not equipped and not... I don't think this podcast is the right place to go into the depths of it. It's, it's, it's to one side of your story, but it's, it's interesting. If you grew up thinking of Australia as the centre of the universe, could I, you, know, you were of that generation of Australians who came over to the UK. You know, you transported yeah. yourself back. <laughs> Why did you do that? Oh, well, that's very simple. You see, I was raised in a convent. Um, I went to a Catholic convent and the great ambition of the nuns in that convent was that I should become a lady. We all had to become ladies and have babies, Tupperware parties and stuff like that. And I thought I'd go mad if I had to do that. I couldn't have borne it. You see, I never even met a Protestant in my childhood because I left in 1960. But what happened was the division between Catholics and Protestants in Australia just disappeared in a puff of smoke. No civil war was required. It just disappeared. Lucky old them. But, you know, we just didn't mix with Protestants and I just felt I wanted to see the world. So here you came. You write very, very feelingly and lyrically about Australia and its landscape, but, you know, the gum trees. And yes, the I know. And the... Do you miss it? Yes. And this is a subject of um, hilarity with all my friends, because if they, they say to me, isn't this beautiful? And I say, it's not beautiful at all. It's dark and grey and green and wet. The weather is disgusting. The sky is all on my nose. And I've never habituated myself to English scenery in any way, which is why I spent so much time in France, because when you go right down south in France, near to Spain, you get some of the stuff I was raised with. But you're, no, you're never tempted to, to go back to Australia? No. I'm too old. Here is home now. And also there's loads and loads of things I love about this place. Come on. You know, I've written something that I hope teachers will look at and academics and school books will change and they'll understand what the, their actual... Um, you see, because the thing is, if you live in a fantasy world about your achievements, it corrodes the body politic, I think. That's, that's my, my moral view that was the impetus behind my book, that if they acknowledged the truth, everybody would be much better placed to live together on, on these islands. It is a bit of pretty troubled islands, don't you think? Somewhat troubled, yes, you could say. Do you, you don't think so, <laughs> do you think Sam? That the, that the historical reckoning, I mean, you know, there, this argument, this book is very timely in the sense there's a big argument going on about how we teach colonial history and should we teach yeah. it. And I yeah. think your, your view on this is very plain in the book. You know, you're, you're clearly of the view that we need to pull the scales from our eyes. Do you think that scale-pulling process, I'm, I'm interested in how, how you think it differs in terms of an honest reckoning with the past between Australia and the UK now, do you think? I think Australia's got its perfectly equivalent dose of um, noxious rat bags. I mean, there's a whole lot of historians who say that no Aborigine ever suffered, you know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, all societies have their Nigel Farages, don't they? But I would say that the general population in Australia, the general impetus is to solve or to, for some sort of resolution 
of their past and it's certainly taught more these days than it ever was in my day whereas I don't think it is here so I would say England was behind in that regard but the problems are the same. Do you think that the you know movement we're seeing now which which wants to you know pull down statues and you know, to see the, the mm. sort of history of slavery and so forth absolutely grained into every National Trust property you go to and so forth. Is it? Are Goodness you sympathetic me. with that? Do you think that's the way to approach it? Let me see. There's only one person I came to hate, not in the process of this book, in the process of having many South African friends. I came to hate Cecil Rhodes. So he's the only statue I would have taken down. I don't think a label is enough for Cecil Rhodes, but the rest of it I definitely think a label would be fine because, I mean, these people, what's the name of the one in Bristol? When you think about it, I'd put a label that say this man was responsible for the death of approximately one million slaves transported to Reunion Island or something, whatever island you want to choose. But I don't think I'd go further than that. And I, also, I don't like this knee-jerk rush to do it. I think... It doesn't do Black Lives Matter sufficient good. Because black there's absolutely no doubt about it. Take my profession. I think the discrimination against black people was deeply unacceptable. Black is such a ridiculous word, isn't it, anyway? But you're in publishing. Yeah. They know they've got to do something about it, not just in the publishing of black writers, but in the staffing of publishing houses. But, I mean, everybody's aware of it. I just don't think you want to go so that you alienate people. I'm an expert in alienating people, so that's why I don't want them to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. Can you, just to go back briefly to your story, because there is this extraordinary thing that Sarah and George have a child together. Yeah. It's not that child who's your ancestor. No, it's not. No. And also, Sarah ends up in Australia, but like 30 years later or whatever it is, or 20-something 20, 20 years later. Well, after his de- deportation... He comes back in 1855 for her because he's, that's after the gold rush and he's made a lot of money. And he made a lot of money as a bullocky, that wonderful man who ran these teams of bullocks that carted everything around Australia before the arrival of the railways because they didn't have canals. They had bullockies and then the railways, which came very early to Australia because the distances were so great. So he made a lot of money there and he also found gold. And he used the money to come over and get her And she didn't come for about three years because the Crimean War came and the ships weren't running and the Victorian state refused to take more immigrants, which Sari was a free immigrant, or paid for by George, while all that was going on. So she didn't get there till 1858. But once she got there, they lived together until he died. And he left her everything. So it is a sort of rather extraordinary love story. Yes, it is a love story. And I always wondered why my mother had a little bit of money. She didn't have a lot, but she had a little bit. It all came from George. His funny little cottages. <laughs> Given that they they were, at best, you know, very semi-literate, mm. how were they able to keep in touch, if anything else? I mean, over this great long period, he's on the other side of the world. They've had a very, well, relatively brief relationship in the UK, you know, how, how did they start, you, you'd assume... That is a bafflement, isn't it? He must have loved her and she must have loved him as A, but B, the conquests 
were very much connected to Leicestershire through the independent chapel in Market Harbour, even though they were villains. And I think that because Sari lived so near many of the other Conquest brothers in um, Leicester, because they moved from Market Harbour, the boys, there were, there were about six or seven Conquest boys. George was the third. And he was transported, but the others weren't transported. They all worked in Leicester or Fleckney or on the canals or brick making. And, but all of them lived in the slums of Leicester around Wharf Street. Wharf Street was a very ebullient slum, no question. And it was full of religious chapels and stuff like that. And I think they, met, they got together on those slum streets because they all lived one inch away from each other. Sari lived next to George's brother's and his father and mother. But would she have been surprised, having, among other things, had a child by somebody else in the interim, when George suddenly shows up, you know, well-heeled and pocket-full of money? Yeah, pocket-full of money. I think they could write, you know, because of the Bible. I think Joseph particularly could write. George only learned to write on the ships. But people did write letters for them. There's a great deal of material on convict letters. If you couldn't write it, somebody wrote it for you. And if you could write as a convict, you could make a lot of money, just as you could, if you were a brickmaker, make a lot of money as a convict because you built the houses that needed to be, that needed to be built. Obviously, you know, a lot of the, the theme of the book is the evils of the British Empire and British imperialism. Did you feel a bit conflicted? Because you were a dame, aren't you, Carmen? Yes, no, I certainly agree, and I'm, I'm very pleased you asked about that. I was very, very hesitant to take the Damery, but I took it on the advice of one of my closest friends who says he never did give me the advice, but he did, because of the work I'd done, because I thought the work should be um, acknowledged. Not, not that I did it, but those women writers. You know, I think they gave it to me because of my founding of Virago, and I think that I did it for that reason. But I don't think I... I don't. I, I could do without the British Empire part of it. Princess Anne gave me my gong, and she said, "Do you feel we still have the need for a woman's publishing house?" That was her comment. Glum. What did you say? I don't. I think I was so speechless by the whole thing. I didn't say anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I smiled or something. Rendered speechless. <laughs> now, finally, I just you, you do promise you're going to do the memoir because Lenny Goodings has, has beaten you to it. Yes, well, I don't see why she shouldn't. Mine would be quite different, really, because I've lived longer and I did other things beside Virago, you know. I mean, I run Chatter and Windows for many years and then I wrote a book about Vichy France and I've written this book. I mean, it's not quite the same, is it? Anyway, my childhood was completely different from Lenny's. Of course, no, I'm not. I wasn't expecting you to do do the same book as Lenny's, but I, I mean, is it is it something you're keen to do? I mean, is a reason? No, no, I don't want to write my memoirs. I, I've always been hostile to it, and I think very few people do it well. I'm just reading one I absolutely love, actually, but she's done it in a particular way, which is Alexandra Shulman's book about her life with clothes. I mean, I, I think that's a lovely way to get a, an idea of a personality, which you certainly do from her book. But, um, you know, born, father, sorrows, agonies, pleasures, fornication, love affairs, yawn. 
That's what I think. I have to find a different way of doing it then. I'm sure you will. Anyway, I think that's our, our time up. Carmen, thank you very much indeed for your time. And listeners, her new book, Oh Happy Day, is a fascinating read and it's out now. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.